and welcome back to another episode of When Life Gives You Melons. We're your hosts. I'm Reed and over there. I'm Drew and we have a special guest today, a close friend of ours as well as somebody who has gone to school for education and has worked in the education system for about 10 years now and we are delighted to have her here and to pick her brain. Hi Melons, I'm Catherine. And I'm a preschool teacher, and I hope I can answer these questions correctly and informatively. Yeah. So um, I've known Catherine since, I mean, before I was born. So <laughs> I've known Catherine my literally my entire life. We're very excited yeah. to have somebody um, that knows us so well to be our guinea pig on our very first interview. Mm-hmm. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, help thank you to help. Okay. So Catherine, first and foremost. Um, what did you go to school for? What is your uh, title, education, credentials that way? I have a bachelor's in early childhood special education. Um, I got that at Brigham Young University, Idaho. And so pretty much what that means is, is that I can do intervention services from birth to the age of eight in the state of Idaho, Idaho and I can also teach in a general ed classroom or teach in a special education classroom um, from kindergarten to age, um, to third grade. So um, in your day-to-day job now, what do you, what do you do? Um, I'm a preschool teacher from three to five-year-olds. So I pretty much just prep them for UPK, a universal pre-K or kindergarten. So I pretty much help with the five domains of learning, which would be physical, social, mental, all that jazz um, to help prepare them for society. Nice. Let's dive into some of those questions that we talked about earlier. In your education while you're going to school, what were you taught about kids with neurodiversities? And I know that that term neurodiversity is still a relatively new one, so it wasn't necessarily used, but uh, just people like us. Being in such a broad type of education, because there are so many things under the umbrella of special ed and and all that teaching. For me, I remember different like um, seminars or documentaries that had us watch that really helped get in the eyes of different types of services or way people think. So one was a documentary on dyslexia and they were interviewing children and how they perceive like a, a picture. And some people saw a vase, other people saw, I think it was a cow. And you know, for me, I was like, I don't see a vase. I only see a cow and only people with dyslexic were able to see the cow like immediately. Mm -hmm. So my teacher asked and said like, does anybody see a cow? And uh, me being the, um, you know, not bashful person, I just raised my hand right away. I'm like, sure, (laughs) I'm just here to help others. I just want to help, you know, kids with, with special needs. So sure, I see the cow. And so we talked about, you know, how that affects with the eyes and some parts of the brain and how it's wired and things like that. So yeah, how you're understanding that uh, visual cue. Um, mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And it's, you said that was when you're in um, college, right? That you're able to say, oh yeah, that's, that's me. Hi, mm-hmm. I can see this thing. 
I know that you have your own neurodiversities. How do you think that that kind of like impacted your decision to do this as a career and, and wanting to be that person to stand up in class and say, yes, this is me. Hi. For me, this might not be the answer you're looking for, but I wanted to go into special ed because I did struggle so much. I wasn't diagnosed until the fifth grade um, and struggled and struggled. And so being able to feel that empathy of it's so hard if you're not diagnosed correctly to be struggling, trying. And I kindly had many teachers that wanted to help as best they could, but you can only do so much without an IEP or any type of services. Um, So I went into the field because I wanted to truly mostly help get children diagnosed to get those services. Um, I really went towards the diagnosing and advocacy part of my degree more than just sitting in a classroom and trying to implement the goals that kids were um, set up to, you know, help and practice on. We call them like one of our like uh, adult heroes, whenever those people that are advocating for us at a young age, those ones that are looking out and trying to find us specifically. So mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, wonderful that you wanted to do that. And you said may not be the answer that I want. That's a perfect answer. I mean, I don't, it's, it's yeah. exactly why you did it. It's, it's mm-hmm. wonderful. And having that empathy, like, and also, you know, you, you can see things from a different angle than other teachers because you have a personal experience with it. Uh-huh. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, and um, also especially being able to yeah, have that experience of going through until fifth grade, uh, not getting those services that you need and understanding how important it is to have early intervention, have that diagnosis, have these papers that say that I get this because I need it. It's a privilege I don't think everybody gets in life, and it's something that I think mm-hmm. uh, is really it's, it uh, gives you a different way of thinking about the world, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any, uh, like, s- specific thing that you remember in your schooling that you really liked um, for, for learning these things or uh, for for going about in your classes? Is there anything that you really stuck out to you that you still remember today? A couple times they had us, especially as you get farther into the program, they wanted you to have, like, a sort of a, a walk-in-their-shoes sort of experience. Mm-hmm. So we had couple different things they had us do we had different types of glasses we would put on that had different visual impairments so some had lots of little holes punched all over through it some had little slits going length or width wise Um, some had large holes some had only one hole and we had to walk around for the day and have to wear them for like two hours each and it was very interesting to see how different people could see visually you know, to think of myself, I'm nearsighted, so I wear contacts, but, you know, I don't have all these little popcorn ball spots all over where there's parts of black and parts of light. And it was very interesting to me to experience that, that way to get a feel for my students or my clients that might having to be dealing with that their entire life. Another one is they had us sit in a wheelchair for four hours and wanted us to go through our classes and do this and that. And we were on a um, mountain, so having to wheel up and down to class was a fun experience and made my arms really sore. <laughs> but it was it was interesting because they wanted us to see, like, you know, in some buildings, they might not be up to code yet. So you might not have the proper ramps or the, the um, buttons to open the doors. And that you need to, you know, those that are in a wheelchair would be having those difficulties. And so... As somebody who's an advocate for those around you, you need to be aware of some of those codes and things like that that might not be put in place. And then the third thing they had us do was we had to have a stutter for so many hours and go out into 
the town and they wanted to go grocery shopping, do this or that, not just hide in their apartments and talk to our roommates, but to be stuttering in public. And that was very eye-opening because I felt sort of embarrassed for when I sort of felt like, I hope nobody thinks I'm making fun of them, Mm. but also to watch other people's reactions, to see people being very kind to me and being patient as I tried to speak. Some were very rude. You know, some looked at me like I was absolutely the dumbest rock on the planet. And it made me, it really tugged at my heartstrings to think that some people have to deal with this all the time. Yeah. And, and that's just heartbreaking that in society, even now with so much, we have grown as a people in the world, but we're also still so narrow-minded, I think, of anything that's different scares people enough that it makes them sort of be mean and push people aside. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about this with the different the different things that I had you experience with being blind and with being um, in a wheelchair and, and stuff like that. And then we get to this to this one that has having a stutter that doesn't necessarily show right off the bat until you open up your mouth. And it's like, as a person that has profound dyslexia, I, I can feel that almost because it's like no one knows who I am until I have to read in front of them. And then mm-hmm. it's just this like uh, the social anxiety from it and understanding that like everyone's kind of like different and we all get these different worries in our life if you're a dyslexic person or if you have a stutter or worrying about not having a door up to code when you are in a wheelchair, you know. So it's, mm-hmm. it is interesting those different things that you have to take into consideration that a lot of people take for granted, I feel like. Mm-hmm. It was interesting with the wheelchair. I'd go into some rooms or buildings where they are quote unquote classified as handicap accessible. I still couldn't get my legs underneath the cupboards that were in front of the sinks. Like my hand, my apartment happened to be the handicap apartment. So it had a larger bathrooms and it had like the railings on the walls, but I couldn't wash my hands going forwards for anything. I had to turn to the side and stretch and reach with my little short arms because I'm only 5'4 and trying to reach things. And I'm thinking this is not as handicap accessible as people might think it would be. So for me, I would advocate these need to be switched. You need to get rid of some of these shelves, these cupboards underneath and and fix it. Wow. It's even like that then. It's not even just like in one side of it, they're trying to teach you like these different ways that people have to go about what they have to think about. But then it's also like as an advocate for these things to see, like, even though it says handicap accessible to test it and say, is it really handicap accessible? Is this really Mm -hmm. helping those people? That's a wonderful like learning experience with that whole little project. I, I really enjoyed that part. That's wonderful. It's sort of like, just thinking here, it's the people, I don't know, contractors, after you make something that is um, handicapped acceptable, you should get in a wheelchair and then go around your design <laughs> and see how well just you think it, it all works. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or I guess you can always get someone who's actually in a wheelchair in to test it out too, but I don't know, just uh-huh. make you think that. Just like make sure that I like to really check or to keep up on it to make sure that mm-hmm. these things are continuously working for us as we mm-hmm. advance in in the world and in well, technology in general. All of those things. I love technology. All right, so I have another one. I took one class on autism, and at the time, I don't think we knew as much as we do now. Obviously, this was more than ten years ago. Mm-hmm. But we had one parent come in and actually talk to us about his child and just some experiences that he had with his exact child. And he had more, um, at the time, they would call it more severe autism. 
And he talked about, you know, being in just like a super Walmart Mm. and how for us, all the lights, they make a little bit of noise, but it's not a big deal. But then you have somebody that has a high sensory issue with it. And that's like screeching nails on a chalkboard times like 1000 and just little things like that. I was really fascinating to me that I'd never thought of just like the brightness of glaring lights or certain signs or things like that could really bother somebody and distract them. And that always has made me more conscious as a preschool teacher. I have four sets of um, fluorescent bulbs in my room. So I always make sure to turn one set off because then that makes it just a little bit light, you know, a little less bright, a little quieter. So in case I do happen to have a child that comes into my room with sensory issues, that might help them just be a little bit more relaxed and calm in the room. Yeah, just those like those little little things to think about. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, that's awesome because you know the the darkness doesn't bother the other kids, and then when you have a kid that might need that, you already are one step ahead in being prepared for them. So yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, understanding the overstimulation part of it. <laughs> okay, actually, um, so kind of on that topic of uh, working in the classroom with these kids and 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 parents and things like that. What's kind of like your experience um, with having children come into your classroom that you think is neurodiverse and the process of like trying to see what works for them or see like how to help them? Because it it seems like to me that you're most likely the first the first person that's going to see this kid and really recognize behaviorally or even like in classroom setting at at all that that they need help. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about that? So the first thing I do is I usually give it about a month before I say something to a parent unless it's something that's so such a red flag to me that I feel it needs to be addressed beforehand. I like to give about two weeks for a child to get acclimated to the room, get used to the routine, feel comfortable with me and then his, his or her peers in the classroom. And then after that, I start doing little um, just benchmark tests just to see how they're doing in their muscle groups, cognitively, you know. Um, socially just to see how they're doing. And after that, um, you know, if I see something that's real concerning, I'll first start out by saying like, oh, you know, they seem to be struggling with cutting. So, you know, we're starting to practice that more just to see what the parents say. Oh, you know, we've never done that at home or yeah, they really struggle. I try to get a gauge there. Okay. And, um, if it's still a struggle, I'll try to come up to them and just say, you know, we see that, you know, little Bobby is, you know, seeming to be struggling with sitting in his seat or, you know, this or that. We've tried different approaches. Um, is there anything at home that you might suggest that would help? We try to get involved that way. And if nothing still works, then I finally say, you know, I think maybe you might want to talk, you know, to the doctor about this or that. But usually, sadly, many, about half of the parents just dismiss it and just say, oh, they're just active boys or they're just a typical boy or, you know, oh, yeah, that was just like me. I, you know, I couldn't cut when I was three or whatever Mm -hmm. and just dismiss it. So it can be very frustrating to see these children that I know could be using help and not getting the services that they that they need. Yeah, Especially because that's like why you why you wanted to go into this, and that's why you're there. Um, actually, with that, I know you have a specific story that I love uh, just for this. It's really good for showing why it's important to talk to parents just to see what's natural for their kids and what's what's uh, 
not. So um, this past year, I had a little girl in my classroom who came in, and part of our routine is they get up from nap, they wash their hands, they have their snack, and then I vacuum the carpet quickly so it's clean for them to do their afternoon centers and reading time and things in a clean environment. So I got out the vacuum like normal, and this little girl just started shaking. Uncontrollable shaking and, like, panic breathing and, like, quiet sobs. And I couldn't figure out what was going on, so I went over to her, and all the other children are calm, nothing's happening, and and I couldn't get her to, to tell me anything, so I just left the vacuum and rubbed her back and didn't do anything. Next day, I brought the vacuum out, same thing happened, and I went, uh, oh, okay then, it's the vacuum. Yeah. So I, you know, turned the vacuum on, I said, I'm going to do it really quick, it's not going to hurt you, it's going to be okay, and I vacuumed very quickly, and I turned it off. And, you know, she calmed down after that. And so the next day I brought her over and I had her touch the vacuum. She was freaking out. And, you know, I said, it's okay. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to bite you. It's going to be okay. And so then that day I talked to her mother and I said, hey, you know, I just noticed when we brought the vacuum out, she really felt uncomfortable and seemed to be really upset by that. If she had any bad experiences, did a vacuum accidentally, you know, fall, you know, fall over and hit her arm or leg and. She said, oh, you know what? You're right. She she is sort of afraid of vacuum, so we always just vacuum when she's sleeping because it seemed to upset her a little bit. And I thought, uh, oh, well, that would make a lot of sense because I didn't know if this child maybe had all hardwood floors. She didn't need a vacuum in the home, so she'd never seen one. You know, I had no clue. And um, so Mom said, oh, yeah, we'll start vacuuming at home. And this was on a Friday. And by Monday when she came in, she her eyes were big when it came in but she wasn't shaking she wasn't crying and she was able to enjoy her snack and it was so sweet because all the kids are going see it's okay it's not gonna hurt you the vacuum's nice and so they were all encouraging her so that that was nice I really I really enjoyed having that conversation and being able to help that parent work her through that situation yeah that's a seeing you know why you wanted to do this job and kind of it's like seeing you know a little bit of the outcome of it, which we don't always get in our, our life, which is, you know, it's nice to see that. Yeah. I thought that was a really good representation of why it's important to have these open conversations with parents and for everyone to just have an open dialogue when it comes to talking about their kids, because it's really trying to figure out like what's best for them and helping them grow as a person and trying to um, give the most support as possible. And I think communication is just such an important thing. Because these children, sadly, some are there 12 hours a day. And so their ki- they, these parents see their children maybe two to three hours a night and then maybe on the weekends for two days straight. So sadly, they don't see the developmental growths or challenges their children are having because they just sadly can't spend the time with them. Yeah, which is just yeah, sad in the day and age of everyone having to work two jobs sometimes. Uh-huh. It's easy to miss those signs, I feel like, when you're a parent in general because you're your sweet little angel um, and you oh, don't want to think too. anything's, anything's air quote, wrong with them. And nothing is wrong with them, but no. just being able to see those uh, signs. And it's really nice to have our wonderful educator heroes looking out for us. And that's why you're there and to really show that we want to be listening to our early education providers and having an open conversation with them. Mm-hmm. I think my last question is basically just on the dialogue that you have with your colleagues and um, the situations you have there. Uh, do you have an open dialogue with them? Um, is there, 
you know, how do you go about that with, with working with these children and trying to talk about educational plans for them? When I first started working as a preschool teacher, I was the only one with a bachelor's. So I tried not to stick my nose into situations too much because I was the newbie and I didn't want people to think that I was high and mighty because I had gone to school for special education. So if people asked me if I went to school, I told them what for and stuff. And as they got more comfortable with me over the years, they'd ask me, you know, hey, you know, I have this child, they're having these problems. You know, did you have anything in school that would help you deal with this or that? And I'd give them some of the information or, or tools or tricks I had learned. Um, we are blessed to have a couple kids that have multiple um, therapists coming in. So we have some OTs coming in, some occupational therapists, some physical therapists, and some speech pathologists coming in. So it's nice because if we have a child where we're like, you know, hmm, we, we really think possibly they might need to be tested. What do you think? We'll have them sort of look over and, you know, they can sort of just pick their eye and we don't say who and they'll just sort of observe the room and go, that one. What is, what is that? Is that one getting help? Because that one might need some services. And I'm thinking, it's actually not the one I was thinking of, but okay, let me write that one down as well. <laughs> but um, I, I have in a couple instances had uh, one colleague in particular ask me, for help and things. And, you know, we will brainstorm a lot. And then I'm very blessed to have a um, director who was in the education field and did um, elementary ed. So she also went through student teaching and did a lot of the same things I did. So we have that common um, knowledge to be able to bounce off information as well, which is very nice. So we have lots of communication and things between the different teachers and things, which I think is helpful to go with. Yeah, it's yeah, communication between teachers, especially when it comes to kids. No, that's very important. I'm glad you guys have that open dialogue. It's, it's also nice to be able to bring in those um, those specific uh, therapists, even though they're there obviously to help that one kid. Just to be like, mm-hmm. hey, do you want to take a quick look at like this group of six kids? What's happening here? <laughs> so it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, any uh, tidbits you would like to leave us off on, uh, Catherine, on your your education or questions today or any anything else you have for the melon patch um i would just my main message would be just to be mindful of your child or the children around you and just think about you know how they're acting you know are they babbling at you know 10 months old or not you know are they starting to try to talk by one or not just those little things that you might think, oh, they're just a little bit behind might actually be something more significant. And if you could get them to your pediatrician just to ask them some questions would be beneficial for your child before they get to be too old and really need help before they get into school. I mean, Definitely the importance of um, catching things as early as possible to give that child the strongest fighting chance possible to succeed in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of brings us back to a uh, little Catherine in fifth grade, you know. That's right. Getting her help yeah. before she got there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you want to help those kids before fifth grade. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yes, I really wish we could get more, especially in the state of New York where I'm living now, it's so hard to help get intervention services before they get into school. And once they hit three years old, you have to go through a, your school district to get an IEP and then get services. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard. And even those who are on an individual family service plan and IFSP, 
some of these therapists aren't getting paid what they're supposed to be getting paid and they'll go months without paychecks, but they're still willing to do their services. And that's very hard for them because they love these children. Yeah. Yeah. Their heart's in the right place and they're not getting Mm -hmm. rewarded for the hard work that that takes. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's almost because, because their heart is in the right place and because they're doing that, people are like, oh, it's, you know, they're, they're our safety net there. It's fine. Let that continue. Mm-hmm. It's like we need to be looking out for our educators as well and making sure that we're really uh, making the system something that's working for them, not only just working for our kids, but helping them out and giving them the best resources out there. Yeah, and it's sad because some of these school districts don't want to spend that money to hire a therapist to come into a daycare or into a home to give those services. So you have to fight tooth, nail, and claw to get anything. And so sadly, most of them just say, oh, just wait till they come into kindergarten or into the universal pre-K and then we'll get them with the help they need because the person's already in the building, right. which to me is just a head slap. And I say, you have to be kidding me. Like if you That's know not going help to help before, them. Yeah. If you know they need help before kindergarten or that, like you want to give them that edge to help them in kindergarten rather than mm-hmm. like sending them in there knowing they're going to be behind. Yeah. I'd rather te- I'd rather have my kid have some practice in a kiddie pool before I throw them into an Olympic sized swimming pool and have them drown. Yeah. I love that analogy. That's a good one. Especially when we're able to see that they need additional help already and they just mm-hmm. don't want to provide that because it will be provided air quote at a later date at an arbitrary age where they're already mm-hmm. kind of getting past these milestones that they really should be hitting. So I, I get that actually because I mean we all went through that with the New York education system. It's all where we went mm-hmm. to school um, yep. and none of us really got diagnosed until we were well into school Public age. school. Yeah. Yep. In the public school. Well into public school. Well mm-hmm. into public school. Okay. So I think that wraps up this episode for today. Thank you very much, Catherine. You've been a delight and thank you for having me. Enlightening and a joy. Um, you can find us on Instagram at melons.podcast on the Instagram melons.podcast. Say this every week. Go over there. I post twice a week if I'm feeling fancy, once a week, hopefully every week no matter what please like share and subscribe us by doing that it helps the podcast and it helps people like you find me because that's what we're here for in the end remember we are a community and we cannot express how excited we are to watch it grow and thank you so much for coming and joining us for our second season Catherine, do you want to say our sign off remember melons be different be kind